0: mother and child come with me sisters
1: young and old now we see let's all
0: to know what women in the South are thinking about feminism and to give Southern women a voice in the feminist movement. Do you consider yourself a feminist? I,
1: I think I do, yes.
0: Absolutely. I don't like defining myself as a feminist because when I tell someone I'm a feminist, they automatically go that way. While I will say, yes, I am a feminist, There's I know that there's going to be explanation after that. Like I'm going to have to explain myself. So... so.
1: I feel like this southern culture, especially in the black culture, we were always like, you know, men first, women second, and then also I didn't know what feminist meant.
0: I feel like I am a feminist. I'm just not an aggressive feminist. I'm a feminist. I'm probably a quieter feminist and I just pick and choose which things to be stronger feminist advocate about. I do believe feminism is for everybody. Welcome back and you're listening to the Fem South podcast. I'm your host, Lee. This is our second part of our series on women healers. If you have not already listened to our introduction podcast or our part one of the series, then I encourage you to go back and listen to those. So, building on some of the discussion points in our first episode, we are going to continue to look at birth work and reproductive autonomy as a social issue, as a source of empowerment and an important intersection of gender, race, culture, and accessibility. We're also going to continue to talk about birth work as a central component to women healers and birth work as a a path to reconnecting and reawakening to our ancestral traditions. We're also going to be branching out a bit into plant medicines and talking about how important it is to know where these plants that we're using in our medicine practices were grown and sourced, um, and essentially why it's important to build a relationship with these plants and their history. We're also going to be looking at the full spectrum of possible experiences that surround birthing and why it's important to bring an intersectional approach to the birthing experience We're going to be looking at trauma in birthing and what Aerie calls pleasure depletion, which I'm also really excited to talk about. I'm going to be joined today by my special guest, Aerie Guajardo-Johnson. Ari is a queer, biracial birth worker, community educator, birth consultant for trauma survivors, and founder of Birth Bruja. Birth Bruja is an online educational platform devoted to intersectional, liberational, and decolonial approaches to birth work, healing, and life. Drawing upon her breadth of experience supporting survivors of sexual assault, studying indigenous Mexican and Indian healing modalities, and obtaining her master's in women, gender, spirituality, and social justice from the California Institute of Integral Studies. Aerie approaches birthwork as a mechanism for individual and collective liberation. The Birth Bruja platform is a manifestation of Aerie's passion for birth work as a spiritual, liberational, and decolonial practice. Uh, she hosts a variety of facilitators who offer monthly birthwork mentorship circles, continuing education workshops, reclaiming ancestral wisdom courses, and so much more. So I'm so excited to have Ari on this podcast with me to talk about the work that she's doing because I've been checking out her Instagram and all these workshops that she's hosting and I can tell you she is a busy, busy bee and is doing some really amazing things in her community. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So hi, Ari. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about women healers. Thank you for having me. How about we just go ahead and get started with you telling us a little bit about the work that you do and maybe a project that you're currently working on.
1: Okay. So I am a birth worker, a rape crisis peer counselor, a holistic peer counselor for survivors of sexual assaults. Um, I'm a community educator, so I facilitate courses, and I'm the founder of Birth Bruja. Birth Bruja is an online educational platform that's devoted to intersectional, liberational, decolonial approaches to birth work, healing, and life. And I'd have to say, Birth Bruja is probably my official answer to that second question about a project that I'm currently working on. Um, it's, it's a heart child, you know? It's something that I'm constantly growing and working, and uh, something I'm really excited that we've been working on with Birth Bruca is um, we're about to announce the the open registration for our second cohort of um, BIPOC birth work mentorship, and BIPOC is Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, and it's a ten week mentorship program. Uh, there's going to be five facilitators of varying. Uh, identities, and it's a place where folks who are passionate about the intersections of reproductive care and reproductive justice, it's a place for folks to come and just learn. Um, We've got everyone, um, in terms of the facilitators, we have uh, folks that range from more specific intersections like myself. A lot of my birth work specializes in uh, supporting survivors of sexual violence, And then we've got other folks who are indigenous healers, um, folks who practice uh, sacral steaming, also known as vaginal steaming. Um, We folks who are, you know, a lot of their offerings is more in the educational and political uh, dive into the work. So it's a really solid program. And the first one was, it went really well. And so I'm really pumped uh, to announce that one. And hopefully that registration will open this weekend.
0: That sounds wonderful. I'll definitely make sure to help promote that on my end as well. I mean, how did you get started with all of this? I've just been diving into birth work through this podcast theme, and it's so exciting.
1: Oh, Okay, I will try to tell this story with as minimal amounts of rabbit holes or wormholes or whatever. Um, So I... In my early 20s, um, I started working for a community-based women of color-led rape crisis center in San Francisco, and it's called uh, San Francisco Women Against Rape. And when I say community-based, meaning that from the get-go, political understanding around identity and the intersections of oppression notified how they slash we shape our public programs and how we trained our peer counselors for, you know, for peer counseling services, rape crisis hotline sort of stuff. And basically from that age, my dive into healing work was simultaneous with my dive into building political awareness. And so that really shaped me. And then that also launched my own journey into wanting to know more about spiritual healing. And so there I was a little, you know, baby Airy, um, you know, learning again about po- uh, political organizing, community organizing, um, holding services, healing services for other folks. And then I also started studying Ayurveda, which is an indigenous medicine practice based out of India. And it really helped me unlearn a lot of really harmful beliefs I had around healing in general, around my body. Um, that's when I first started to understand how colonialism teaches a lot of shame and blame and how it normalizes violence against people of color, against uh, folks socialized as as female. Ayurveda also helped me reconnect with my ancestral practices. I am half Mexican, half white, predominantly German descent, but um, I say white because we don't really acknowledge much. In terms of cultural practices on my dad's side, um, it's just uh, pretty—you know—assimilation to American generic American culture was a a really hardcore survival mechanism. So that's what was celebrated: um, was assimilation, not you know holding on to ethnic traditions. So uh, a lot of what I learned in Ayurveda reminded me of snippets that I learned growing up on my mom's side of the family through Catholicism and uh, Catholicism is historically incredibly problematic. And so I automatically cut those pieces of myself off because of how harmful it felt. And so Ayurveda helped me revisit those places, such as connection with the sacred feminine, La Virgen de Guadalupe, for example. And it allowed this uh, healing for me to then pause and just, I'm still incredibly grateful for Ayurveda I very, very much for all the um the strength and the resilience of the Indian community for being able to pass down and hold on to this powerful medicine. And I knew it was time for me to do the effort to learn my own ancestral medicine and to learn the own resilience and power of my people um, and not just settle for something that I was able to access because of my privilege that I was able to access because I was able to afford a class, you know? So, so yeah, um, all of that went on at the same time. I was uh, teaching yoga and working with predominantly women of color around healing from sexual violence. And naturally, as I got older, a lot of the folks that were drawn to work with me got older and reproductive questions kept on coming up a mentor of mine was like, you know what? Like, why don't you just go ahead and invest in the birth dealer training? You know, it's going to inform your work. You're going to really like it. And I was like, okay, fine. Fine, I'll do it. And it was like the second full weekend in, I realized it was like something just clicked in my chest. And it was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it was because previously, I mentioned all those realms, right? The politicism, the activism, right? You know, the spirituality, the healing previously, all of that had oftentimes felt like I was like an octopus, you know, with like different tentacles in different realms. It was really, I got a lot of pushback for being too political in spiritual spaces. I got a lot of pushback for being, you know, too woo woo or too spiritual in political spaces. And the thing I loved about birth work is that birth work requires you if if you're truly showing up to this work with integrity, it requires you to have a tentacle and everything. It requires for you to have a reverence and and an an, uh, an understanding of the, of anatomy of the body. You know, you can't. I mean, in my belief, if you're truly being present, you can't be in that birth room and not feel the presence of spirit in that space. You know, and so therefore, it requires that you that you do the spiritual work of paying attention to intuition and also acknowledging the shadow of death. You know, you can't, right? You can't approach birth truly without feeling just how close that death realm is, you know? And not to mention too, you can't talk about birth work without talking about the historical violence on birthing bodies. You know, you can't talk about birth work without talking about, you know, systemic oppression, um, and you see us, you know, when I say medical providers, I'm not just talking about hospital people, I'm talking about midwives too. humans are humans. And we live in a very, um, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, we live in a very fucked up mainstream culture, you know, that, that breeds prejudice and, and bias. And you see that, you know, you see that when you're with a client and the medical provider walks in and reacts for the first time. You know, Um, you see that when you're in community with other birth workers and I'm a I'm a light skinned um, woman of color. And I see that when I'm in community with birth workers that have dark skin and hear about how they have to deal with shit that I never have to deal with, you know, Um, just based on the on their appearance of their features and their skin color, like how people will perceive and assume that I'm educated in a certain way and then assume that they are not. So yeah, birth work allowed me to bring all those facets that I've been learning and practicing and put it into action. And uh, one last statement, and I'll end this very, very long, long one woman rant. Um, <laughs> and that is one of the things I love about birth work is that it allowed me to be able to simultaneously offer one-on-one services with people while also do my other calling, which is weaving community, which is, you know, bringing people together, because as is with many professions, or some may say are all professions, if you're in service of others, it's crucial that you be in community, whether it be a community of peers, you know, colleagues, someone to be able to, who's informed enough to call you on your shit, if you're being problematic, you know, there's that. But then also, it's, really intense work. And it's incredibly underpaid as a lot of quote unquote, you know, women's roles are women's jobs are. And so you need to rely on the inspiration and affirmation of colleagues, um, of friends of community in order to stay engaged in this work. Otherwise, you're going to be burnt out. Martyrdom can only get you so far, you know, and so that was a long answer.
0: Well, you definitely answered my first question on the list of your holistic approach. I mean, you mentioned a lot of things that we can talk about. I think that maybe we can start with your intersectional approach. I mean, you've already said how all of these elements come together through birth work, but it seems like you are very much focused on intersectional work, on women of color and empowering women through birthing. So can you talk a little bit then about how that maybe plays out in your actual work as a doula? Like, what does that look like when you're doing your work?
1: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate this question. And I'm going to answer this from my own intersections of identity, okay? I'm not making a statement on other people. But as I mentioned, I've spent a good percentage of my adult life studying ancestral traditions. I started off studying ancestral traditions that weren't mine, and then moved through and started studying traditions that are mine. What I've found is that it is so, especially indigenous practices in general are really, they're simultaneously a lot of times very simple because it's based off of surviving, right? And it's based off of using what's around you. So for example, you know, learning food as medicine, It doesn't take you having to go and buy super exotic spices in order for you to find food as medicine, right? And at the same time, uh, it requires a lot of depth and a lot of practice building relationship to the medicine that you're accessing. So food as medicine, for example, you can know the properties of the food, but building relationship with that food, like actually caring about where it grew and whose hands helps assist it. And what's the history of that crop and that land? Uh, how how right? Like, how do the people who caretake that land, like who caretake that crop, how do they care for the land? Like the more that we care and build a relationship to foods, that helps to open up the healing aspect of it. So it's not just in a physical sense, but you have that that spiritual medicine as well. And and it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of time. And also I when I'm learning um, traditional Mexican practices historically, like you can go to classes but um, a lot of times it's something that's more passed down traditionally like through families or if you grew up in that Puebla in that village in that village um, there are some books, but it's something that again like it's meant to be in person. you're meant to be learning with a teacher. And so therefore there's a lot of holes. And there's a lot of questions that are left unanswered because I'm learning in what feels kind of like an artificial way, you know, because I'm I'm self learning. So so that was with my ancestral, you know, traditional Mexican practices, and and I can compare that to my experience sitting with a teacher, multiple teachers studying Ayurveda, and see how that's different. Having regular interactions with a teacher, right? Like, and so in short, I guess what I'm saying is even though I have a lot of knowledge that I implement in my life in regards to how I care for my body and my heart and my spirit, I don't feel that I'm in a place where I can be a teacher of these practices with integrity. So I say that out loud because in the United States specifically, there's a lot of unintentional exploitation of indigenous knowledge where people who are so hungry for healing will go and take courses because they have access to it. They can do it financially. And then they finish a program and then they're like, okay, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna teach everyone I know about this herb and to use it. And that can be problematic. That can be problematic because automatically when we learn something and then immediately turn around to regurgitate to others and sell it in a capitalistic way that shows right off the bat, a disconnect from the heart of what indigenous medicine is trying to tell us is that it's about relationship. So I say that again, not to judge people who were really enthusiastic about their healing and wanting to help others and then selling their work to help others. But I say that as something just a nugget to contemplate on. And so therefore going now to your original question if folks can even remember that is that in terms of my services for others, it's founded upon the, the interconnectivity that I've learned through studying and practicing indigenous modalities. However, I utilize that mind, body, spirit base and I combine it with my political and then what you call like intersectional approach, which means that when I work with a client, I call them birthing people, right? I don't say women because a lot more than just women give birth, you know, a lot more folks, men, right? Uh, gender diverse people, et cetera. So therefore, even that inherent understanding of birth is not just a female thing, not just a feminine thing um, informs my decision. When I work with someone, I don't make assumptions about their access to resources, whether it be, I'm not gonna assume that they um, have access to, uh, to safe housing or consistent food. I'm not gonna assume that they got their undergraduate degree which I feel like a lot of people assume that people go to college right after high school, for example, you know, just like I'm not going to assume that if they're coming, if they're pregnant, I'm not going to assume that this is a wanted pregnancy, you know, that they chose this pregnancy, they could have been sexually assaulted and decided to keep the baby, you know what I mean? Or similarly, I'm not going to assume that if they come in with um, another person in the room, I'm not going to assume that that's their partner. So intersectionality, what it truly means is just it's requires us as the care providers to do the work to explore and as best we can understand the full spectrum of possible experience that surrounds reproductive care and reproductive experiences. Um, And what it does is it then allows us to see and observe and to better invite people to be their whole selves in the space with us um, and then, similarly, just as you know, I, it's, I work hard to do the best I can to encourage someone to bring in their full identity, their full history in the room with us. I also, going back to that spiritual perspective, I also do my best to encourage people to bring in their full selves in regards to their mind, their body, and their spirit. That's also something that is really easily lost in a lot of hyper professionalized professions hyper professions, you know, where people are like, oh, to be legit, to be hyper-professional, I need to just stick with, you know, ABC, right? I need to keep it really narrow. And while I get that that may assist in efficiency in some areas, when we're talking about birth, when we're talking about an an inherently embodied spiritual and emotional experience, like, we're not doing anyone a service by only inviting them in the space to talk about one aspect of their humanity.
0: So you're talking about this full spectrum approach. And as you're talking about it, I'm wondering like, how does that compare to the modern medical approach? And as you're walking into a appointment with your clients, you accompany these people through their whole birthing process, right? So you're in these environments, cause I'm assuming that they're not all home births, right? You're in the hospital, in other words. So what are you bumping up against then? Yeah. And just to, I'm going
1: to speak a little bit to this, just because a lot of folks may be learning about doulas, birth doulas and birth workers for the first time. So birth, so there's many, there's many doulas and just a, a note, I don't use the term doula too much other than just as preliminary things, because doula literally means it's a Greek word for female slave. And so, really? especially as, yeah, so especially as a woman of color, that's, I'm not trying to revive I any connection did not to know
0: that. that. That's, cr- I did not know that at all. Wow. Yeah. And, and it's a whole thing, you know,
1: some people in the community are like, you know, we're taking it back and other people are like, why? We can use different words. And so that's why I use the, word, the term birth worker. But there's, there's birth doulas that specialize in supporting folks around the birth experience. And there's postpartum doulas who specialize supporting, they have more of a education around. um Infant care and in, in like education around child development and so forth. So those are kind of the, the differences. And it's really common for folks to assume that birth doulas mostly serve home births because we are we we can be more well I would say crunchy, but we can be holistic. And so they think, oh well, if you work with a doula, then you're you know you must hate the medical system. It's like no, 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 it's not like that. Um, I serve mostly people who birth in the hospital simply because that's what most people can afford. It's that could be a whole other episode, friend. Like, honestly, um, it's just like, it's the, the whole fuckery of birth and lack of access for anyone who doesn't have money. And anyways, I digress. So yes, I support people through hospital births. I don't go to their prenatal visits with them just because this is generally not necessary unless they're a survivor and they're, dealing with being triggered in the examination room, so then I would assist, but most of the time it's it's not part of our job. We don't, we'll check in with them after the visit. But in terms of like what I see is that medical providers, you know, they're people. and a lot of times, most times, they're in that role, they're in that job, that profession because they want to be of service. And just because they're people, you have some people that are extraordinary, that are super attentive, that will like look your client in the eye and like. And I'm talking at this point, I'm talking about what I see when the, when labor actually starts and we're in the birth room. You know, um, like you see providers who are really dedicated to humanizing birthing people and supporting them in a in a meaningful way. And then of course you have, because humans are humans, you have people who are like obviously smart but horrible people. People And you're like, why are you in a profession when you obviously hate human beings? Like, it doesn't make sense. And those are, I imagine, the people that are into that work because, and you know, the body fascinates them and problem solving fascinates them. But I say that, you know, again, just to normalize, right, the full range. And you'll see birth workers, too, of the full spectrum. Some are complete, mean people. And there's other people who are amazing, you know. Western There's a time and a place for Western science. There's a time and a place for Western modes of care. And a perfect example is when there's an emergency. When there's an emergency and baby needs to come out now, not just to save their life, but the burning person's life. That is a perfect example of why Western medicine is such a gift. And as we've known, I'm also, you're talking to someone whose dad is a a lawyer, personal injury attorney. I've grown up knowing about liability and growing up knowing about how medical systems are shaped. Medical systems are shaped by money. They don't change policies and procedures unless it saves them money. So literally there's a number out there of how many people can die before it's, it costs them enough to need to change their, their policies um, and their procedures. Because it costs them money to change their policies and procedures. So, therefore, that's why a lot of the problems that you will hear about, not just birth, but reproductive care, you know, in Western medicine is all based on minimizing liability. And a lot of times, what that does is that actively creates a dynamic between the birthing person, shall we say, right, going back to the birth example, and the medical provider. Where the birthing person's power is taken away, in lieu of checking all those boxes for the medical provider, so that if a lawsuit happens, they could be like, "No, no, no, we checked them, and this is what the charts say." You know. Meanwhile, um, for example, cervical exams. A lot of times, medical providers will insist on cervical exams, even though they don't have to. It doesn't help the birth process at all. Cervical exams when they take multiple fingers and insert into the vagina. And it's incredibly invasive, incredibly painful and uncomfortable for most people. And they do that simply so to fill out a chart. And again, it doesn't help. It doesn't serve the process of birth coming along. It's not like baby's going to be like, hold on, you have to check how many centimeters now, you know what I mean? And so it's just that that's the more challenging parts of what as a birth worker, you go up against is this culture that doesn't value the birthing person's experience of birth. It only values efficiency and liability. And that fucking sucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I can attest to that experience with the cervical examination, having two babies in a medical hospital, you can't even get into your bed and start getting any kind of care until you're dilated so many centimeters and they send you home and i can see how if you don't have anybody really to support you that could be devastating because you're you're in pain you know you're already starting that experience it's happening and now you have to just sit and wait for somebody to determine whether or not you're ready to be cared for and what does that even look like once they start to pull you into that environment it's still not a very um it's not a soft, caring experience.
1: No, no. no. You know, birth is not a soft and caring experience. You know, Um, one could argue that the inherent experience of birth is, when I say violent, I don't mean like necessarily in a bad way. I'm just talking about, you know how the, the ocean is violent? Yeah. Like the ocean is violent. It reshapes stones and rocks and it can throw you and it can kill you just but also can also give birth to so many things you know it's primordial and birth is primordial and that's a big part about where um you know so in the in the modern medicine context most people don't know okay most people with uteruses don't know shit about their uteruses because it was deemed unnecessary for us to know you know And so therefore, it ends up putting us at a disadvantage because we're not informed enough to be able to know that we have choices, you know, that we don't have to take oral uh, birth control to regulate our cycles, that actually that taking that oral birth control can significantly harm our reproductive systems later on in life. And when I say that, this isn't just about trying to have babies. For folks with uteruses, our cycles around hormones that's it's one of the founding pillars of our well-being of our immune system of our brain functioning so when we have a reproductive system that's off that impacts everything but we were not taught that because again it's not deemed something that we have to know about and so knowing too that like a lot of birth workers what we do is we provide education that back in the day was something that our our people would tell us, right? Like, oh, you started bleeding. Let me share some stories about what I learned and about what your grandma learned. And you know what I mean? And, and and through storytelling, we were able to teach about cycles, about what to eat, about what to do physically to help relieve discomfort, what not to do physically. You know, there's a lot of things that were coded through social... Activities and cultural practices. And then with colonization and assimilation in the U.S., it was deemed, for a lot of ethnic groups, it was deemed lower than or less than to engage in ethnic practices because who could afford the hospitals? People with money. It was a sign of affluence. And then around, I believe, is World War II, is when insurance started to be subsidized and started to make available to the people because it was an attempt to like help cultivate money in the economy. And that's when it became more normalized. Well, that in combination with the persecution of midwives which took birth experience and even an abortion and a lot of reproductive care, it took it out of the community's hands because criminalized straight up, right? so that people would have no choice but to have to rely on the medical institutions.
0: Yeah, sorry, that was, see, that was a rabbit hole. No, that's not a rabbit hole. We've been talking a lot about that on other episodes in the podcast, especially since Alabama is one of those states that, you know, made midwifery illegal. And only recently in the last decade has it been legalized. That's not surprising. I mean, even California, I don't have the numbers right now in
1: my head, but even California that's a state that has a, you know, like a, a reputation of being super liberal, um, it's incredibly difficult for midwives to to work. And as such with increased for example legislation around midwifery, more and more requirements, the more and more narrow definition of what is deemed a legit midwife and not legit um it just creates so many barriers for people to practice and it also ensures that only a very select kind of person can go through that process
0: right which is why you end up with midwives who don't feel like they're any different from the regular western model of medicine exactly yeah, yeah.
1: i was i wanted to ask you a question about your birth experience so as someone who's a birthing person, um, twice, right? You said twice? Yeah. Um, yeah. Who went through that experience and then also someone who now is a, you know, a, a circle keeper of um, women's community, has your reflections upon your birth experience, has that changed over time? The more that you sit in circles with women, the more that you're learning about healing practices?
0: Oh, Absolutely. I mean, I feel like I was in the dark when I gave birth to both of my children. And it's it's kind of painful to really look back on that experience and see just how, um, how much I didn't know and how alone I felt. And I think that that feeling of being alone and feeling like this isn't how it should be, even though I didn't have the words for it at the time, because this was when I was 30. My first child was born when I was 30. And so I was young, I consider that pretty young. (laughs) And reflecting on that feeling of like, this isn't how it should be like, I shouldn't be feeling like I'm alone. I had extreme hyper nemesis with um, both pregnancies in my first trimester. I was married to someone in the military who was deployed most of the time of both of those birth those pregnancies. So I, I felt like I just didn't have support and now that was probably one of my biggest motivators being pregnant and then being a mom with two kids with a partner who was gone a lot in the military and not even really feeling like I had a community to help me raise my children. That feeling of isolation is really, I think, one of my biggest motivators to starting a community of women. And now, like, after being in community with women i see just how starved i was and how sad that and how sad that is but also i'm sure i'm not the only one like i i can only imagine there are so many women out there going through and feeling the same thing yes
1: yes 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 it's so interesting um i literally uh 2 days ago sent an email um, to someone on my birth project team for a post and an email that's on that exact topic about how isolation Isolation and loneliness is like, a, in my opinion, can be described as like a slow moving poison. It's something that can build in power over time. We can become, it's so normal to us that we can just stop questioning it. And what happens is like in the email, I actually wrote out, I said, uh, well, in the context of the email, I said, quarantine plus capitalism and the hustle, you know, if capitalism plus colonialism equals depletion. Right? Because uh, prolonged isolation, prolonged loneliness, for most people, it leaves us feeling stagnant and depleted. And it's like, where do you, what do you do with that? What do you do when you're so stuck and you have no energy moving through you? And it's just, and the answer is community. Because then we don't have to do anything but literally show up in the space. We can sit in a circle, you and I, and not say one thing and be fed by the energy, by the inspiration, the creativity of all those other people in that room. And we would leave being better than when we came, you know, and that's something that um, that's something that, yeah, I I bring up colonialism specifically because this is a very colonized notion where like a lot of folks, family and like um, uh, not just family, but like nuclear family is like your pod. Those are the only people who know that you poop and who know, you know, who know that if you have illness in your body or if you have, you know, struggles, they're the only ones. And then what happens is, right. That we oftentimes only go in other spaces when we have our shit together, or we only go on other spaces when there's something that you can do for me, when it's a transactional interaction, whether it be sex or networking or resources. And that's not, that's not connective. That's exploitative. Right. And so that's one of the reasons why I was just so pumped when you reached out to me, because I really believe in this vision that you're doing with the book club and the podcast. Like this is medicine that transcends geographic location and it transcends a lot of other barriers that can be in place. And it's just, yeah, it's a really, it's, well, this is a beautiful example of the medicine that we can offer each other.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's changed my life being in community for sure. And I still have moments, though, where I just like you said, you only want to show up when you're your best self. I still have to fight with that feeling that I I can't call somebody and ask for help because I can't burden them with my problems. My children are much older, but I had that feeling when they were young, like I really need help, but I can't ask for help because that'll just make me look weak or that'll make me look less than or something than I what I want to project out in the world. And so this idea of what we project out in the world versus the communities that we're trying to create are very disconnected. Yep.
1: Meanwhile, you've got all these like fangirls out there and all these aunties and the wings that have the energy and the time to lend a hand and to offer support. You know, like that's a love language. When a, when a friend's like straight up, like I am, I can't, I have one friend who struggles from depression. Sometimes they're like straight up, like I can't get out of bed today. And I'm like, all right no problem, pay attention to your doorbell, I'm sending you soup, you know? And like through the miracle of DoorDash, you know what I mean? Like, And so I, I just, I feel loved when they share with me and I feel loved when they allow me to love them in ways that feel good to me. And that's the difference too, right? Is like how a lot of times like people wanna give what feels abundant to them. And so that's why the more that we communicate with each other, like right now I don't have time. My my life, I'm like up to my eyeballs with commitments, but you know what I do have is like pockets. So if you need to pick me up, if you need someone to do a quick research or someone to send you a booze in the mail, you know, again DoorDash. Um you know, if you <laughs> that, like if you need something that doesn't require like hours of my time, like girl, I got you. Like that's, you know, because that feels abundant to me. Um yeah. And, but just like there's someone else out there that if you have, you know, if you're doing a blog post and you need someone to edit, there's someone out there who doesn't have any time or doesn't have money. Right. But you better believe that they have those, you know, those English writing skills and they're going to go and edit your blog. Like that's a love language. Let us be yeah.
0: loved. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I love the, um, the cooperative nature of that to you. So before we move on, though, I really want to give you an opportunity to talk about your trauma work, because I know that trauma is an important component of your work. So can you talk about how trauma affects one's reproductive journey and how you help women work through that trauma? Oof,
1: Man, so that the question of how trauma can impact one's reproductive journey, like that could be a whole. Actually, that is a podcast series on my podcast. Uh, it's Birth Reha Podcast, and it's a uh, four episodes, I believe. That's um, it's entitled "Supporting Survivors Who Birth," and uh, and it features two birth stories of survivors who gave birth, and it also features uh, an interview with a ther- with a, a therapist who specializes in supporting survivors, and then it's uh, one episode of me giving a almost like a mini training about how survivorship specifically of sexual trauma can manifest through the birthing experience. So for folks who really want to get into that, you can check out my podcast episode. I also offer this in in trainings. So I guess in a nutshell version if I can, trauma is something that is very finely woven into all of our aspects of being actually okay before i do a trauma one-on-one have, have you talked about trauma on this podcast have folks already kind of had like a one-on-one I,
0: I haven't really talked about trauma specifically it comes up here and there but all
1: right so in a super super simplified way of explaining this when we as humans experience the world we are experiencing them through our senses right through touch taste smell etc cetera, etc cetera. So those experiences then become encoded, not just in our brain, but in our muscle memory. And so that is why years later, when we are, you know, revisiting a memory, we can like remember what it can feel like to have sun on your cheeks when you had a day by the ocean. You can almost remember how it felt like to to feel the sand brushing against your calves. And then on top of that, you're able to access perhaps What you did that day, it's like, oh, we got up, we went to the store, got groceries, we had a picnic on the beach, and then we went home, right? And so you have like a linear memory that is logical, it's emotional, and then you can recall those sensory things. So what happens when trauma comes is, um, I'm going to break down trauma into something that's called, there's big T trauma, which is often described as things where our physical where we're physically endangered in that moment. So things such as car crashes, birth trauma, war, uh, a violent sexual assault. You're not the, actually, I didn't mean to say that, a sexual assault in general, right? In that moment when your physical well being is threatened. And then, then there's something called little T traumas, which is something where you're not in that moment overtly in physical danger, but you're still in danger, uh, such as bullying. Um, racial profiling by a clerk at a store, divorce, poverty. Um, Those are examples of, of trauma. And the thing about little t traumas is they're so common that they're normalized. So a lot of folks don't truly recognize them as the legit and intense experience of trauma that they are. And so what happens when folks live a life especially marginalized folks, so folks that are queer or trans, people of color, indigenous folks, right? Like those are examples of folks that are marginalized in their society, in our society. And marginalized folks are at a higher risk of experiencing violence and have the least amount of access to healing resources. So therefore, folks are experiencing on top of all those little T traumas, big T traumas. So when we're thinking about that, Recognizing that when we experience trauma, one of the key survival mechanisms that we experience to to survive, especially big T trauma stuff, is that our senses are like, okay, in order for me to survive, I can't turn into a vegetable. Uh, So therefore, I'm going to completely store this memory over here so that you can't remember, so that you're able to get up the next day and go to your job because your kids need housing and food. Uh, You know what I mean? So, so it takes our sensory files and it breaks them apart. And so some people don't remember anything. They logically don't remember anything, but then they'll have sensory uh, memories, body-based memories. Sometimes it happens right away. Sometimes years can go by and you don't really remember shit. Like sometimes you can logically remember, like for me, for one of my experiences of sexual assault, I can logically remember what happened but I have no emotion. I don't remember physical things. I just logically know what happened. So some people, they spend the rest of their lives like that. Other people, they start to get sensory memories coming back. A lot of times they come back around major life events, like childbirth, an accident, getting married, getting divorced. And so that's when some people, as I said, like certain snippets can come back. So that's why sometimes all of a sudden, maybe like, you'll be in your family living room and like your mom will be talking about uncle Joe. And all of a sudden you're you're completely consumed in rage and you have no idea why, like, why am I so angry? And that can be that deep down, uncle Joe did something to harm you. And now the memory is starting to resurface and it's time to process and access. So that is, a, did that make sense real quick? Like trauma one-on-one? Yes, definitely. Okay, cool, yeah. So when we're talking about reproductive experiences, as I mentioned, it is inherently a highly embodied experience, right? So um, that's why like one of my earliest memories of my, it was like my first or second pap smear. It was a male provider. I was in college. It was like whatever, you know, the free stuff was there. And um, I was mortified. I was extremely uncomfortable, but I was so dedicated to not coming off as weak or not coming off as scared, you know, I wanted to like present as like, in a certain way. And so I completely numbed out, I was on there. And I remember, as soon as he basically stuck his fingers inside to do the exam, I remember my chest clenched up so hard that it was like, really hard to keep on the conversation, you know, because he was like, asking me, you know, Ob's, they're like so what are you doing for lunch and it's like well when you take your hands out of my vagina like you know um and so he uh so I remember like it was really hard to breathe and my mind was totally normal my mind was bent on answering his questions about what the fuck I was doing that afternoon I was complete it was like my body experience and my mind experience were two totally different things and so for, for a lot of people throughout the reproductive care their body is showing signs of trauma. Their body is showing trauma symptoms. And so examples can be clenching, increased experiences of pain. Uh, Examples can be like, there's so many examples. Um, And then when it comes to pregnancy and when it comes to birth, as we just described, like a lot of OB care is incredibly invasive. And so you especially if an OB comes in and they are on a tight schedule maybe they'll look you in the eyes maybe they won't maybe you're already on your back with your legs spread because the nurse had prepared you for them maybe they talk to you like a human but maybe they talk to you like you're a machine and it's like okay your machine looks good right like baby's safe your blood pressure is good check and then they leave meanwhile you weren't given the chance they didn't look you in the eyes to see that you have deep circles because you haven't slept in weeks Or they haven't stayed to ask you about, you know, maybe they asked you about how you're eating, but maybe they didn't ask you, like, are you keeping it down or are you vomiting all the time? You know what I mean? Like there's that lack of, can be that lack of holistic care. And so for a lot of survivors, not just survivors of, of sexual trauma, but like survivors in general, for a lot of folks, because they don't know the symptoms of trauma, because they haven't done necessarily that work around learning about their healing in that way. A lot of times folks just internalize. It's like, Oh, it's just my body being broken. That's why I have so many miscarriages. Oh no, no, no. It's just my body. um, My body hates being pregnant. That's why I'm so violently ill all the time. Like, no, you're not broken. Those are normal responses to trauma, A, and it's possible for us to heal and to move through them so that they can be released, not just from our, our memories, our brains. It's not like we forget, but when I say released in a way that it can be more of just, it's a story, right? But also to release the muscle memory, you know, so that, especially for folks of sexual violence, so that our pelvis knows that when someone's coming toward, or when there's a, a um, uncomfortable sensation, it doesn't think that we're being violated again, you know. So there's a lot of unlearning, and a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of power that comes through the birth experience, specifically for survivors of trauma.
0: But yeah, well, you know, I think it's important for women to reclaim this role that we once had, that we were once central in, because now so many of us are facing male doctors, white male doctors, and what associations do women have and what trauma are we carrying? And we're supposed to just be okay with that because it's so normal, but it's, it's creepy. And I remember going to a few male gynecologists and feeling very uncomfortable with that. And um, not really having the language to to talk about it. It's just kind of like that. This is just the way it is, you know? And even as I say it now, I feel bad for saying that because I know there are a lot of great male gynecologists out there and I don't want to vilify them. But at the same time, we should be able to talk about this great loss because it once was a realm that women occupied.
1: I, I know a lot of what you just shared, a lot of people feel. And I think it's important to note that the harmful aspects, basically, there's a difference between men and patriarchy. And it's important to note that there's a lot of female identified practitioners out there who are more harmful than a lot of their male counterparts. And it's because of the pressure, right? Of like the thing about patriarchy is that it's perceived as power. So if you, and it makes sense, if you're like one of the few, you know, female identified folks in your medical floor and you want your colleagues to respect you, what does that mean? To internalize a lot of the characteristics that are, you know, that are portrayed by your your male colleagues. So I see that because there's a lot of folks that are victimized by female providers. And also, it's important to note that a significant percentage of sexual assault uh, survivors, their perpetrators are women. You know, having a female provider doesn't inherently mean you're safe. So that's why I wanted to bring up that patriarchy aspect. You know, yeah, in that's terms of point. I'm glad that you did because
0: you're right, that's exactly true.
1: And then this is something that you and I spoke about a little bit in our offline conversation, is that and so another part of my work is I, I provide workshops entitled Reclaiming Sex and Intimacy After Trauma. And the notions of pleasure, especially for folks socialized as as female, like pff, that's some deep shit. And we cannot, you know, we cannot approach our own pleasure without coming to terms with where do we learn what's appropriate and what's not, right? Where do we learn about our anatomy and about pl- our anatomy of pleasure? For most people, we never were taught anatomy of pleasure. And it's in just that inherent process of reclaiming our pleasure, it goes entirely hand in hand into um, reclaiming our reproductive autonomy. Whether it is to have children or to not have children, whether it is to, as you shared, be more intentional and being like, you know what, like, I don't have to suffer through whatever medical provider is on duty that day, you know, or I don't have to pretend to be nice to a provider that makes me cringe before I even walk into the building, just because that's who my family has gone to forever, you know, like, reclaiming our autonomy in all the ways is what's making a huge difference. And that's what, again, us sitting in community with each other, that's where we can learn these tools of how to do that. Because how do we know if no one ever told us, for example, if no one ever told us that it's entirely okay to change medical providers after one visit, most people would, like my mom, she endured this fucking asshat of a man for decades, for decades, and then she got a divorce. And she was like, you know what? I'm gonna change providers. It's like, yes, do it because you know what I mean? Because she was already in a place of reclaiming her autonomy. <laughs> I could no, go on and so on important. about this. That's so important. <laughs> it
0: also has to do with insurance too. Mm-hmm. That's another factor. In,
1: yep, um... access. Yep, yep.
0: Yeah, I want to come back to your discussion about pleasure um, because you have hosted several really interesting workshops, one of which was recently hosted by Cassandra Corrado. Am I saying her name correctly? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and she's a sex educator who taught the workshop for you called Pleasure and Pregnancy. In the week leading up to this event, you talked about pleasure decay and the need for birth workers to care about their client's sex life. So I thought this was a great idea. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yes, yes.
0: To start off with pleasure
1: decay, honestly, I don't know if that's a quote unquote, real term. Like, I don't know if I read that somewhere, or if that's just terminology that I've started to use to describe this. But pleasure decay is how I describe what happens when, for example, like, uh, for me and my partner, we've been trying to have a baby six years, we've had four miscarriages, it's just been a road, a really challenging road. And, and at this point, I've actually made my peace, I've decided, you know, I've like, I, I have a lot of babies in this world. Birth Bruja being one of them, you know, also babies that were born from other people's wombs. I'm like, I'm going to be one hell of an auntie one day. So anyways, I've made peace of that. But I, we went from being two super passionate, very sexual beings to these two robots that were just so hyper-focused that it sucked all meaning and connection, in my opinion, from the actual act and and what happened was the more and more miscarriage that happens, the more and more months that went by without a positive test, the more that we would be like, it'd be like kissing. We'd be like barely at the beginning and all of a sudden I would just be hyper aware of how my body's probably gonna fail me again. Like that was, those were like the narratives that were coming through my head. And so then even things like masturbation was incredibly hard for me to do because it just connected me to the reality that, and again, the narrative was that I'm just broken. I'm just broken. So I'd be, so I I even stopped masturbating and connecting to my erotic side because it just brought me face to face with this really intense struggle. So that's just one example of what I call pleasure decline. Oh my God, pleasure decay. Another example can be for queer or trans folks who um, their experiences, their process of conception is a highly medical one, or even folks that aren't queer and trans. You know, there's a lot of folks who process of conception is incredibly, incredibly medicalized. But I say specifically queer and trans folks, because not only do you have that intensity of that medical process, you know, the invasiveness, the sterility, all that but you also a lot of times are faced with the barriers of people judging you and making assumptions and misgendering you and all those other, um, all those other experiences of violence that add to it. And so then again, it can be such a traumatic experience trying to conceive that again, any interaction with your sexuality or your erotic nature can just be painful. And so then it starts to decline. And that's really important for us as birth workers or just folks in community to realize because it's something that you know also right shame folks are taught that you shouldn't be especially if you're again if you're socialized as a, as a woman you're not supposed to be put in and out there let alone when quote unquote something's wrong with you right you don't share your business and so there's a lot of hurt and suffering that is perpetuated because people are so alone in this pleasure decay. And then, then again, going because I, I wrote that post for, for birth workers. So then what happens is when they do conceive, what could have been this joyous experience for them, they're just depleted because they're so deep in their grief. They're still so immersed in the suffering of that whole freaking process that now on top of that trauma that they experienced trying to conceive, now you have all the bells and whistles of a pregnant body and all the bells and whistles of the logistics surrounding a birth and postpartum. And so it's a big deal. And so the more that we can normalize again, the more that we normalize the full range of reproductive experience, the more that we can create room for folks to share, even if it's just, you know, you don't have to be an expert, but even if it's where it's normalized enough that if you were to come to me and start talking to me about how, you know, you know, honestly, girl, like I haven't masturbated in six months. Right. And you just said that one phrase, if I make a face, if I make like, Oh, that's a gross, or that's a weird face, you're not going to tell me more. And you're probably not going to tell anyone else. Again, but if i have done the work to normalize the full range, and if also if I'm present enough, where I can respond in a supportive way to you, that could be the door that can open up to your healing journey that could be the sliver to totally change that momentum of you feeling isolated and depleted for so many months or years.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I remember being in a community of women that were having babies. And I remember the talk about, you know, working out and getting your body back. Or one woman even said something about not breastfeeding because she didn't want to lose the shape of her breast. And and another woman talking about the pressure her husband was giving her to have sex just a few weeks after having a baby. And I just remember thinking, man, you just put out a baby. Like, how in the world can you be expected to be thinking about male pleasure and the male gaze and, and, and all that? And that's a lot of responsibility and weight. And as I internalized all of that, the weight of all of that, it fell so heavy in that time period a time period in which you should be thinking about your baby and nurturing and loving your baby. And you have all these hormones to help you do that. And yet at the same time, you've got society, um, patriarchy men and telling you that you should lose weight, be more attractive, hurry up and get your um, sexual desire back. See, but, you know, it's but a that's the thing.
1: Oh, it was absolutely a lot. Um, and I want to say that actually for the record, there is a hormone that's released when your milk lets down mostly. And then it continues when you breastfeed um, or chest feed that intentionally suppresses your libido because biologically speaking, right? Like you'd be able to better nourish this little life better if you're not pregnant versus having to sustain two life forms at the same time. Right? So that's one of the things. And that being said, there is, a small percentage, but it's a, sur- a percentage of women or um, birthing people who are so in their bodies and so in their erotic nature, like that birth for them, especially folks that experience birth is a really empowering experience. They're so in their sexual neurotic power that they have a the libido and they're like ready to jam, which I'm just like, good for you, like go get it. But also (laughs) like, I don't understand logistically how you do that, but like whatever, you know, but I just wanted to like, again, normalize that range. And going back to what you're saying, like when we are practiced in connecting to our autonomy, right, Like, like you can't connect to your pleasure without connecting to your autonomy. But when we are practiced, we inherently are better at communicating what we need. We're also better at understanding the nuances of connection to others. So one of the things that I do when I work with birthing people and, and if they are partnered and especially if they're partnered with with cis men is I when we're talking about postpartum, you know, I tell them just so you know, it's really important now that you consider what are the things that connect you two together because some couples it is sex. Some couples commun- verbal communication only really deeply happens after sex. Or other folks, it's like going on jogs or watching TV. And the truth is, regardless of our, our connective love languages, is probably going to be disrupted during postpartum, right? You're not going to be able to go for a jog. You may not even be able to sit down and watch a whole show because, right, like one of you or both of you are caring for babies. So it's really important for folks to, as best they can, identify the connective habits that they have with their partner and then to brainstorm. So going back to the sex piece, if they know that that sexual interaction is a key part of how they connect with their partner, then A, like spoiler alert, penetrative sex is like just one of the many, many things that sex is, right? So there's a lot of ways that you can be sensual and erotic with each other without it being like penis and vagina interaction or, or right, like oral. And so The more that we're connected to our pleasure, the more that we can see how eroticism and sensuality is a really diverse landscape. And then, therefore, the best we can be like, listen, babe, like I love you. I want you. I don't have a physical arousal right now because I'm breastfeeding. But, you know, when it feels right for me, I'm totally down to listen to erotica with you while you masturbate or I'm totally down for a sensual massage and then you take care of yourself. Like there's a lot of, you know, those are just two examples of like um, compromise because the whole premise of it is that our partners, they want to feel desired. They want to feel loved. And especially if they're not the birthing person they're a lot of times, and to be honest, let's be honest, a lot of times cis men, they feel like whiny babies because suddenly they're not the center of the world anymore. You know, so the more that we are connected to ourselves, the better we can brainstorm our needs, the better we can brainstorm how to meet our partner's needs in a ways that feels good to us.
0: As you say that, though, I still want to just throw in there that something needs to be said, perhaps to the partners in terms of their expectations as well, because if their expectation is to be pleased or to have that same relationship um, sexual dynamic that perhaps they had before the baby was born. Mm, maybe that expectation needs to be reconsidered. And also, how much are they contributing? How much are they helping? All of that plays into whether or not I think, you know, a person can have any energy to even respond to any of that. So.
1: Oh, totally. I mean, even it's so funny, like, pretty much everything we talked about in today's episode we could break it down into like multiple episodes because because what you brought up is simultaneously you're talking about gender roles and the way that gender roles perpetuate to depletion and isolation right and the um and the devaluing devaluing of women's labor so again there's a gender notion and then there's that human notion of communication and desire and needs and wants and And how, if we don't prioritize our wellness, how can we expect to cultivate wellness when we're our our most exhausted, right? And we're our our most overwhelmed. It's like, I don't know about you, but when I'm exhausted and overwhelmed, that is not my finest moment of communication. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So,
0: and I think, you know, I I think it kind of still goes back to community because, I think if there's a strong community there in all aspects of what we're talking about, these things can be, um, can be dealt with, can be worked through.
1: Yes. Education. A lot of what you shared about not just men at this point, I'm not, not, not just talking about men, but talking about partners in general, a lot of folks don't know. They literally don't know the birth process until it happens to them or their partner. They don't know that there's a literal biological response that happens, you know, where the libido changes, they think like, oh my God, like, you know, um, my wife, and, you know, let's just say if it was a female birthing person, my wife hates me now. She's no longer, it's like, no, she's, her body's doing exactly what it was supposed to do. And so if people were given information, if they were given these tools beforehand, then as you are talking about all that damage, you know, wouldn't have to occur. And also, as you said, the thing about community, We can give each other practical information like this but more importantly we have examples of brainstorming and maybe i imagine you've spoke about this too but like one of the really harmful things about patriarchy is the way that it really disconnects men and masculine beings from each other and so how imagine if a group of male identified people sat around and was like listen bro let me tell you all this wild shit I learned about what happens at birth. And this is what we did. You know what I mean? Like, like,
0: yeah.
1: Oh, (laughs) so that's why it's so important. So important that is part of our expressions of feminism for folks who, who are down for that term um, include cultivating healthy masculinity, just as we're here to cultivate healthy femininity. Um, But yeah, we need both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Okay. So I think that we've kind of come to the end. Uh, we could probably keep talking for another few hours, but yes, <laughs> very easily. <laughs> just to kind of wrap it up. Can you talk a little bit more about birth Bruja? Cause I know that's your baby. So how can people find you? What other, what are all the areas in which you're of service to people?
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So birthbruja.com is uh, is my website. And for folks who aren't familiar with this word, bruja is Spanish for witch. And I intentionally chose that word. I chose it for one reason. And then over time, now I love it for another reason. But in short, it's because in my ancestral tradition, right in Mexico, specifically, bruja was a term used to persecute people who challenged the church. So women who had property, women who had too many resources, women who were too outspoken, healers, not just women, but peoples of all genders who were connected to their indigenous practices, who spoke to plants, who worked with dreams, people who fought back against colonization, um, queer people, disabled people, Bruca which were used as a really powerful tool of control by patriarchy, by colonialism, by uh, Christianity specifically. So I loved that term because a lot of what I wanted to cultivate for learning experiences are things that would have gotten us burned, right? Places where people can share their dreams, places where people can reclaim their power, places where people can learn about other realms, spiritual realms, emotional realms. So that's why, originally why I named it. The tagline is a really long one, but it's, uh, Birth Bruja is an online educational platform that's devoted to intersectional, liberational, decolonial approaches to birth work, healing, and life. And so what that means is that a wide spectrum of workshops are offered. Some that are explicit to birth work, such as the pleasure in pregnancy. It's actually a recording that's going to be placed for sale this or next week for folks who are interested. But that one's for birthing people. That's also for birth workers or people who are you know, supporting pregnant people or people on the reproductive journey from there. And then we also have workshops on tarot. We have workshops, there's like a pozole cooking class. This weekend, um, uh, my birth purika intern, Sam, she's amazing. She and I are hosting a workshop. It's a, a BIPOC journaling circle. Devoted to uh, all along, along the themes of letting go and rele- uh, letting go and calling in. Yeah, ranges from like hyper-political stuff to just um, skill building. And again, this notion of reproductive care, this isn't just a professional thing. This is our lives. These are our loved ones. And so for all of Birth Brucha offerings, there's uh, live workshops. There's a whole stash of pre-recorded workshops that are for sale. There's that podcast. My whole notion of Birth brukha is that it is for anyone who's interested in these intersections. And you'll see that there's a few offerings that are community specific. For example, the journaling workshop is for Black, Indigenous, and other folks of colors. But you'll see that at the top of the workshop description. And that's just because, as you all know, this circle, this space for women, sometimes being in specific in community specific spaces, it can open us up in ways that we otherwise wouldn't if we were feeling like we needed to be ready to protect ourselves. And so that's why um, I offer, yeah, I do offer some community specific spaces as well as stuff that's open to anyone. So thank you for asking. Yeah, I, I really love, I have a lot of love through and for this platform. So thank you.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. And I just love that all of these offerings that you have are so circulated around the notion of empowerment and working against colonialism and, and uh, white supremacy and all these things that are plaguing our our country and our world right now. I really appreciate that. Thank you so
1: much for inviting me here. Thank you for the powerful work that you are doing yeah, I just, I'm really, really grateful for this. Thank you.
0: Me too. Thank you, Ari. Well, Fem South is a podcast and book club community produced in the Deep South. We are dedicated to educating, supporting, and empowering women through feminist theory and community. We are intersectional, we are inclusive, and we believe there is no one way to be a feminist. Feminism is an ongoing journey of self-discovery and activism, Our book club is an ongoing exchange between theory and embodiment, and we are simply here to hold space for this collective journey. If you want to get involved with Femme South, you can go to our website at femmesouth.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you would like to be a part of our book club, you can ask to join our private Facebook book club group where we read and discuss books online. You can also follow us on Instagram and listen to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play. We'd really appreciate it if you would give us some feedback and a rating so that we can know what you, dear listeners, are thinking. If you feel motivated to support us, you can head over to our Patreon account, Patreon slash FemSouth, where you can select your monetary gift. So until next time, you've been listening to Bim South.